Chapter 1. A Beginner's Mind. Why we can't learn without it. Why is wonder essential to learning and innovation? How can curiosity keep you motivated? What kinds of questions help to cultivate curiosity? Curiouser and curiouser, cried Alice. She was so much surprised that for the moment she quite forgot how to speak good English. Now I'm opening out like the largest telescope that ever was. Goodbye, feet. In Lewis Carroll's 1865 Alice's Adventures in Wonderland, Alice's curiosity takes on the form of a white rabbit. She chases it across a field and down a hole until a passageway lined with doorways invites her into a strange new world of fantastic possibilities. Magic potions and mysterious edibles give her a new perspective on life. She shrinks and grows and shrinks and grows until maintaining a fixed mindset is nearly impossible. Alice's tears turn into a river. A caterpillar counsels her through an identity crisis and a baby transforms into a pig. Wonderland is not for the faint of heart. Inspired by a real-life Alice, a ten-year-old daughter of Henry and Lorena Little, Carol wrote Alice in Wonderland with a young girl's imagination in mind. That innocent, curious, open-minded nature is also something I witnesses in my eight-year-old niece. She's forever exploring, digging up earthworms, cooking up new recipes for green slime, and asking dozens of questions. If you are sound, what would it be? Do monkeys only eat bananas? Are you a hippie? But Alice's sense of wonder is no curiouser than your own. Your own white rabbit once led you through the wonderland of your childhood. Once upon a time, you saw the world with endlessly inquisitive beginner's mind. You had few judgments and fewer preconceptions. You had everything to learn and little to lose. In a beginner's mind, writes Shenyu Suzuki, there are many possibilities. In an expert's, there are few. A beginner's mind, like a child's, rarely gets stuck in one viewpoint. That readiness to experience reality from new angles means that in Wonderland, Alice's curiosity never ceases. With enough curiosity, a door that once appeared too small, too large, or too locked swings open. But as we grow up, we tend to lose the wonder that grows curiouser and curiouser with each hour. We lose our willingness to embrace contrary points of view. We stop jumping on tables, wearing colanders as crowns, and chasing our wonder into wonderlands. Today, if you go down a rabbit hole, it usually happens online. Engrossed in a topic or gossip, you follow the links until you've fallen into a tangle of information that only gets weirder and weirder the further you tunnel into it. Once you're clicking away, you may be unable to quit. You may, like Alice, come upon an alternative universe built upon strange logic that bewilders you. Curiosity can incite your creativity, but it can also, as the old adage says, kill the cat. If you grew up on the stories of the Brothers Grimm or Charles Perrault, you may have learned that there's a dark side to curiosity. 
In Grimm's Hansel and Gretel, a brother and sister fall into the hands of a cannibalistic witch after their curiosity has led them to nibble on her house made of candy. In Perrault's Bluebeard, an aristocrat leaves his wife with the keys to his castle. She unlocks a forbidden door only to find the murdered corpses of her husband's former brides. The book of Genesis narrates the consequences that await you if your curiosity or your hunger for knowledge lead you to taste a forbidden fruit. Astrophysicist Mario Livio warns us there are two sides to curiosity, the good and bad, legitimate and illegitimate, commendable and controversial. Curiosity drives education, exploration and innovation, but it also drives the paparazzi, surveillance capitalism and princesses to lose their heads. Cautionary folktales warn children of the consequences of their unchecked curiosity. Yet those tales often have a silver lining. Hansel and Gretel escape the witch. God banishes Adam and Eve from Eden, but the pair procreate and human civilization emerges, as troublesome as it has been. Mindfulness Break. Wonderful. Throughout this book, you'll be introduced to basic practices in mindfulness to encourage you to stay curious. And there's no better place to begin than with the practice of wonder. Our experience of the world needn't be fantastical to be full of wonder. You can find wonder in the simplest activities, washing the dishes, driving the car, sipping a cappuccino. Slowing down your mental and physical activity encourages you to notice what's happening in and around you. That alone can stimulate your curiosity. It also enables the networks of your brain, the space they need to communicate and function optimally. Step one, take a simple activity that you do every day, but that you tend to rush through absentmindedly. It might be cooking, walking, the dog, or organizing a spreadsheet. Let's use the example of cooking for now. Cooking takes several steps from choosing the recipe to shopping for the ingredients. Let's start with a trip to the market. Take a minute to drop your awareness into the present moment. Whether you're at the market or just imagining it, mindfully breathe until you feel present. Notice the textures, colors, and shapes of the ingredients on your shopping list, whatever they might be. Pick up a single item, a yellow pepper, for example, and take in the richness of its bright yellow skin and its fresh, crisp scent. Take pleasure in the weight and firmness of that pepper in the palm of your hand. Pause and wonder. Pretend you're seeing a pepper for the first time. There's something miraculous about a tiny seed germinating and growing into something as nutritious and delightful as a vine of yellow peppers. Visualize how rich with vitamins and flavor your pepper is, how miraculous those molecules are, how baked into a dish, how nourishing it will be for your friends and family. Offer a brief moment of thanks 
Gratitude is healthy for the brain. If practiced regularly, it increases self-esteem. Saying thanks to everyday experiences and objects can also enhance a sense of wonder. Stay awake to how a mindful approach to everyday living can spark wonder in a beginner's mind. Apply the same wonder strategy to objects and experiences in your working environment. Mindful curiosity, increased attention, resiliency amid stress, clearer relationships. With all the benefits attributed to mindfulness, no wonder the practice has gone mainstream. But what exactly is mindfulness? Contemporary mindfulness, of which there are more than a few definitions, originates from the Buddhist Noble Eightfold Path. Eight practices that have mastered lead to liberation or freedom. Those eight practices are number one, right view, two, right intention, three, right speech, four, right action, five, right livelihood, six, right effort, seven, right mindfulness or right awareness, and eight, right concentration. Buddhist teacher Tara Brock describes right awareness or right mindfulness in the following way. Just as a cup is full with water, this body is filled with awareness. As we sense the awareness inside the body and the awareness that listens to sounds beyond the body, we discover the continuous space of awareness that includes and gives rise to this entire creation. Opening up in this way allows for homecoming to wholeness and freedom. Some of the first teachings on establishing mindful awareness come from the Pali Canon and appear in the Satipatthana Sutra which is translated either as the establishing of mindful discourse or the way of mindfulness. In Pali, sati means memory, recognition, consciousness, intention of mind, wakefulness of mind, mindfulness, alertness, and lucidity of mind. Satipatthana means the application of that wakefulness, alertness, lucidity, memory, and recognition. Mindfulness isn't just about having the right awareness, but about acting from that right awareness. One of the contemporary definitions of mindfulness is moment-to-moment, non-judgmental awareness. But many Buddhist teachers with respect to the tradition have cautioned against interpreting mindfulness simply as staying attentive to the present moment. Mindfulness is not bare attention but remembrance, writes Dr. B. Alan Wallace, founder of the Santa Barbara Institute for Consciousness Studies. If mindfulness is remembrance, what are you supposed to remember? To many Buddhists, practicing right mindfulness means remembering the Dharma or the teaching of interdependence. If member means part, then remember means to bring those parts together again. 
If you practice mindful breathing, you remember that the body and the mind that breathes in and breathes out is not separate from the processes that cause the body and mind to arise. Deep attention to breathing fosters an awareness of the breath and the self as a process. Genetically speaking, the structure of DNA is also a process. It's continuation of your mother and your father, of your ancestors. The codes and expressions of your genes have been shaped by your inheritance, but also by your physical context or the environment in which you live. In a literal sense, you are a continuation of the trees and the sunshine and the rivers, of the enzyme and the proteins that replicate, and the trillions of cells and microbes that keep the body alive. The body, in and of itself, is all the processes that cause it to arise and all the processes that cause it to pass away. Buddhists sometimes refer to that as the phenomenon of origination. In Pali, the word is Samudaya. It means rise, origin, but also bursting forth, effulgence, and multitude or quantity. When you cultivate mindful awareness of your feelings, for example, you might begin to notice the conditions that precipitate your joy, despair, and anger as well as how those feelings influence your behavior and others in the world. Sometimes I like to think of mindfulness as getting curiouser and curiouser about the nature of things, curiouser about your physical body, curiouser about your mind in all its complexity, curiouser about your deeper connection to all of life. One of the benefits of slowing down and paying mindful attention to your life is that it often encourages you to notice the tiny details of flavor, texture, sound, and sensation, all things you might not normally notice. If you stay mindful when you're talking to friends, family, and colleagues, it's easier to experience an expansive sense of the people in front of you. You'll learn new perspectives and interact with them in freshly, with a beginner's mind, and with less interruption from your preconceptions and misconceptions about who you think they may be. Mindfulness can increase your ability to focus on what's appearing right now and to cultivate a deeper appreciation of life. But the practice is not all about maintaining laser focus nor is it about fixating on a particular task. By paying attention to the rising and passing of sensations, you may learn to identify some of the patterns of your habitual mind. You may learn to grow less attached to any particular state of mind. You may be able to maintain a greater degree of clarity and insight. Mindfulness also involves what Harvard psychiatrist Srini Pillay calls unfocus. The unfocused mind, contrary to popular opinion, is necessary for any high-level thinking. In his 2018 book, Tinker Doodle Dabble Try, 
Palais identifies several modes of the unfocused mind. Each offers rewards and benefits in its own right. Stay awake, he writes, to the eureka moments in the shower, to those times of reverie or in conversation when you're not censoring your thoughts, to the imagination that asks, what if? To the daydreamer that fantasizes about a new possibility, to the body that delights in hiking, dancing, or creative physical play. Palais encourages us to leave the cult of focus. Dabble, he writes, like Einstein dabbled, like Picasso dabbled. Dabbling helps you stay present in the world. It wards off dementia later in life. There is something terribly self-limiting, Palais writes, about whittling yourself down to only those activities that earn income or that you're intent on mastering. When you dabble, you tinker with possibility. When you stay curious, you open to new perspectives. When you explore new points of view, you make new connections. Curiosity also activates your cognitive rhythm. Cognitive psychologist Marriott Jepma discovered in 2012 that when your curiosity is peaked, blood flows first to the regions of the brain that process arousal in conflict. And when you satiate your curiosity, blood flows to the ventral striatum, an intrinsic reward center. Those short-term rewards motivate you and give you energy. But recent research suggests that even just thinking about a reward increases the release of dopamine. The act of seeking, of curiously seeking, as we'll explore in the next chapter, is pleasurable in itself. MIT physicist and novelist Alan Lightman reminds us that psychologists have long known that creativity thrives on unstructured time, on play, on divergent thinking, on unpurposed rambling through the mansions of life. My inner self, he writes, is my true freedom. My inner self roots me into the ground beneath me. The sunlight and soil that nourish my inner self are solitude and personal reflection. Before the right words came to her, the poet Gertrude Stein took long baths and stared at cows in the countryside. In 1922, T.S. Eliot retreated from his high-stress banking job in Margate, a sleepy seaside town in the south of England. There he wrote The Wasteland, which stands out as one of the most influential poems in the 20th century. Albert Einstein came to his theory of relatively not only through unrelenting discipline, but also by imaginative play amongst possibilities. The poet David White writes, We are most rested when we are a living exchange between what lies inside and what lies outside, when we are an intriguing conversation between the potential that lies in our imagination and the possibilities for making that internal image real in the world. We are rested when we let things alone and let ourselves alone to do what we do best, when we give and take in an easy foundational way. We are closest to the authentic self and closest to that self when we are most rested. Call it your authentic self, 
your inward oracle, your wise voice, your intuition, or your ingenuity. Pillay suggests that you not only have a physical center of gravity, you have a psychological one. Your originality, your own true voice, he writes, grows from this place, as does the mechanism for emotional self-control. You tap into this inner compass, he continues, when you're unsure about where to go, how to respond, or what to do next. When you feel grounded, it is often because you are relying on that psychological center of gravity. When you're self-connected, you operate outside traditional boundaries of learning. And this is how you express your greatest strength. It is also the place you can encourage your team to go to, to express their greatest strengths. Not only monks, artists, poets, and philosophers need to retreat to contemplate, ideate, and create. Warren Buffett said, I insist on a lot of time being spent almost every day just to sit and think. Quietly spending hours with your inner voice reorients you to your core values. It's sometimes more effective to focus on your values rather than your goals. Your goals emerge when you know what your core values are. You can lead more effectively when you lead from the guidance of that inner voice. Core values also provide the keys to creating lasting bonds within a diverse team. They tend to cross the boundaries of polarizing political affiliations and inherited belief systems. Values are neither religious creeds nor political stances. They are often best summarized in single words. Trust, compassion, love, strength, or responsibility. They might shift slightly from situation to situation. So if you're preparing for a difficult conversation, trust might arise as a core value to rely on. When you're facing uncertainty, the value of strength might come up. You don't need to go on an extended retreat or meditate on a mountain to connect with your core values. Touch base with them periodically throughout the day. Take a one minute break every hour to yawn, stretch, and give yourself time for a value to arise from that deep core self. On some days, your inward oracle might value compassion. On others, freedom. Spend time with your unfocused mind, the part of you that is not trying to respond to and solve all the problems. Allow your mind to digressively converse with your intuition and your wisdom in ways that put no expectation on outcomes and deliverables. Quiet, relaxed reflection will allow you to see the bigger picture, a vantage point from which better decisions arise. Socrates relied on his inward oracle to guide him too. But how often do you give time for reflection and inquiry? In what ways do you make time for solitude to reorient yourself to your wise and wondrous voice? If you're a leader, how often do you encourage the people you lead to take time to reflect, to wonder, and to focus 
inwardly on their core. Mind toggling. Moving between mindful attention and mind wandering. So we talked about two states of mind in this chapter, focus and unfocus. To really master mindfulness, you need to be able to switch at ease between those two states of mind. So, wherever you are, create a safe space for your mind. Use anything around you that soothes you. A comforting scent, a soft pillow, a room flooded with sunshine. You can also close your eyes and imagine an ideal environment. Check in with your body. Notice any tension without any judgment. And yawn mindfully five times. I'll lead you through it. And a little later in the book, we'll get into why yawning is so effective in calming the nervous system. So none nice big yawn. Take pleasure in the air coming in. Expansiveness in your chest and awakening of your shoulders. And as you yawn, you can slowly move your body in any way that feels right. You can rotate your head, lift your arms and stretch, twist your arms or roll your shoulders. Notice the release of tension and increase in relaxation. A couple more, just like that. one of your five senses. For the sake of this introduction, let's use your hearing first, and then you can try other of your senses later on. Focus on the sounds in your immediate environment, and choose one sound and follow it for approximately one minute. So I'll time you. Choosing a sound I can hear in the distance a car, maybe the fridge humming, perhaps your own heartbeat. And just follow that single sound. Now, come out of that focused state of mind and switch mindsets. Just let your mind drift. I'll time you. You can go wherever the mind takes you, from sounds and images and thoughts to your inner and outer world. Experience your mind wandering and let go of controlling it. 
Let go of judgment. Just let go of focus for now. But still stay present and aware to where the mind is going. Stay curious. Now let's switch again back to that sound or another sound, choose one, and focus attentively on what you hear in your immediate environment. And you can continue with this to end this section of the podcast and this reading of Curiouser, the new science of insight and innovation. Just continue this exercise a little bit longer if you like. And stay tuned for the next installment as we learn about motivation and its relationship to curiosity, about questions and inquiry and how they can support you in your organization as a leader. We'll learn how to live the questions, how to trust a little bit more. I hope to see you there.